Act Three. Sugar and heists and everything nice. Scene One. Catch an elf by the toe. Elf Colonial Marchlands, Tuscarora Mountain, Maundy Thursday, Sext. Afternoon, 6th of April, 1284. Florence looks around nervously and notices Lynx is missing. She left him there. Trembling guilt drips from the corner of her right eye. She left him when he was surrounded by goblins near the altar. She wanted to help, but Nganyan had convinced her to run. Angst. That's what Nganyan called it. Angst. She went out to Shade Gap, hoping to save a few humans from the goblins' sacrificial rites, but instead she abandoned her compatriot, one of the sweetest wood elves she knows, to their bloodthirsty clutches. But wait! Here he comes now! Lynx is alive! His eyes are heavy, his hands are trembling, and his shoulders are stooped. He plops down on the bench and just closes his eyes. Leaning his head back, he breathes such a woeful sigh you'd think it was his last. Florence doesn't dare ask what happened. She cannot let the high elves know she's been moonlighting as a hero to save humans, especially not her father. With a wink to his daughter, umpire-in-chief Kibler Ernestson steps up on a raised platform and announces, Madames, Mademoiselles, Messieurs, Ladies and Gentles, we all have stakes in today's tournament, and I doubly so. First, as umpire-in-chief, I want to see our colony recruit the finest and fittest elves to bolster the ranks of the Ivy League. They are our first line of defense, securing our borders against goblin raiders, human poachers, gnome spies, and dwarf troublemakers of every sort. Second, as a father, I want to see my daughter perform well so she can pledge her strong hands and nimble body to the service of our great colony. Some of you, no doubt most of you, are feeling put off by the conflict of interest. In years past, an unofficial tradition has developed, whereby the umpire's immediate family has had to sit out these tournaments to prevent their family ties from bringing in unfair advantage. Even with this precautionary measure in place, many elves still criticize these recruitment tournaments because they feel the judges lean partially toward those who are politically well-connected rather than those who are the most qualified. To rectify this imbalance, I am offering to pay for a scholarship, out of my own personal funds, for a commission as a junior officer in the Ivy League to any elf or elf who comes up as the second place winner if my daughter takes first place. This way, she will not be depriving anyone of a well-deserved scholarship. The news startles the crowd, and excited murmurs ripple throughout Thor's base. The dean of the Ivy League himself, Dean Halvard Prinson of Clan Sanford, replaces umpire Kibler on the stage and announces in a loud voice, The rules for this tournament will be the same as always. The first elf to make it to the highest point of the Tews tree shall win a free commission as a junior officer in the Ivy League. Earlier today, I expressed my concern about the unprecedented participation of Mademoiselle Florence Kibler's daughter in this tournament, but our assembly of junior officers feels the umpire-in-chief's offer to pay for the commission of his daughter's runner-up is a fair way to compensate. Before we begin, a warning. The Ivy League is not for the faint-hearted, but it is not for the rash or reckless either. 
It requires self-control and good judgment. Any elf or elve who directly or indirectly causes a fellow contestant to suffer permanent injury or death will be barred from the Ivy League, with no possibility for appeal, on top of the usual civil and criminal penalties. And now, contestants, take your places. They all circle around Tew's tree. It is the only one of the seven sacred trees supporting Thor's base with low-lying branches that can be reached from the platform. The rules are simple. Get to the top first. The sport resembles a special mix between gymnastics and martial arts because the competitors punch, kick, knee, and elbow each other while climbing, a vertically ascending wrestling match with a touch of acrobatics. Contestants ready? Three, two, one, go! Florence, Lynx, and Screech, a small but tenacious high elf from Clan Antmione, scramble to the west side of the tree where the branches are spaced farthest apart, making the climb more difficult but giving their ascent less chance of getting stymied by a fistfight. On the east side, where the branches interweave like a tidy set of monkey bars, the main pack of elves clusters up for an easier climb but with more violence in the fray. Only a few yards up from the starting block, the pushing, shoving, grabbing, elbowing, and scuffles get desperate and ruthless. On the west side, Screech takes the lead quickly. She is only an inch over four feet in height, but she has unusually large hands and feet. She climbs quickly and without thinking. Florence and Lynx follow close behind. Despite his fatigue after having saved the humans from the goblin ritual, Lynx seems to be powered by some unearthly rage and strains his way up, neck and neck with Screech. His ferocity draws too much attention as a fist comes slamming across his face. He hears his nose crack and slips down a branch. The elf who punched him is a reject from the east side scuffle and retreats from the tournament altogether to avoid retaliation. But Lynx has no time to waste on revenge. He quickly wipes his nose with his left sleeve. Luckily, only snot. No blood, no foul. With Lynx out of the way for the moment, Florence races past him, hot on the heels of Screech. Umpire Kibler's generous offer has had the side effect of keeping the most dangerous roughhousing away from her, since she poses no threat by winning. When Screech reaches a branch that dead ends, Florence realizes she has made a terrible mistake. Like a flying squirrel, Screech leaps off the branch to another that hangs quite a way off, covering a distance Florence can't jump across safely. Reluctantly, Florence backtracks and loses second place. Although the east side is a much quicker climb, the scuffle has taken a steep toll in attrition among the competitors. In overall first is Dyer. Although both his parents are wood elves, his physique is bulky and dark-haired, suggesting some dwarf ancestry. He is by nature a friendly sort of chap, but having grown up constantly picked on, slow with words, and gifted with exceptional physical strength, Dyer has learned to use his fists to settle arguments. As they climb higher, those on the east side are forced by the arrangement of branches to move west. When Screech's eyes meet Dyer's, she desperately surges upwards, hoping to outpace him. Unfortunately for her, the easy climb on the east side has given Dyer too much of a lead to be easily outmaneuvered. He knows she is the quicker climber, and that his only chance of staying in first place is with brute force. Seeing him close in on her, Screech leaps away to a far-off branch that will put safe distance between them, but Dyer snatches Screech's ankle in mid-flight. Had Screech just let him pass, she might have outpaced him on the final sprint upward. She does not think. 
Being grabbed at the ankle triggers a vicious defense mechanism in her muscle memory, and Screech struggles so hard to break free that she falls. Fearing for her safety, Dyer holds onto her ankle. He lets her dangle upside down until she finally calms down. Had he just let her free fall, he might have stayed in first place, but his chivalrous act in making sure she stayed safe gives Florence and Lynx the chance to catch up to him. Realizing he has lost his chance, Dyer bottlenecks the route up and allows Lynx past. Go, Lynx! I'll hold them off! At least one of us wood elves has to win! In a heartbeat, the race has narrowed down to Florence and Lynx, with Lynx in the lead thanks to Dyer's cooperation. Now the wild animal in Florence comes out. If Lynx wins, she loses everything, the race and her reputation as a warrior, and no one will vote for an elf who does not know how to put up a good fight. In the heat of the moment, Florence pulls out her silver dagger, the same one Ganyan recovered from the goblinus, and pins Lynx's left boot to the tree. Technically an illegal move, the adjudicators below pretend not to notice. Lynx has the clarity of mind to realize there is no point in fighting with her or blaming the adjudicators. He can still win second place. Quickly, he kicks his boot off and veers onto a divergent branch to avoid further conflicts. With the route ahead of her cleared away, Florence shimmies up the homestretch branch, the one that is painted red and has a small knife gash notched into it. Every Ivy League champion climber in the past 20 years has considered that marker the top notch. With five feet left before Florence's victory, Lynx swings his legs out and uses the springiness of the divergent branch to pole vault himself up to a nearby branch that leads almost as high as Florence's top notch branch. Although he is close enough to leap onto Florence's branch and wrestle her for first place, Lynx instead wraps his arms around the tip of his branch and twists his whole body until his legs stick straight up into the air like a defiant flagpole. Immediately afterward, Florence reaches up and taps the top notch. The victory horn blows. Lynx swings himself around and looks at Florence. She looks at him and realizes that by making himself a living elf flagpole, he technically reached the highest point above Tew's tree first. To ensure her victory, she wraps her arms around the branch and tries to swing her legs above her head as well. But the last twenty years have not been gentle on the top-notch branch. Year after year, violent scuffles have weakened its integrity. When Florence swings her legs out, the bow breaks and sends her sailing in free flight 250 feet above the forest floor. Culture Shock Seeing the danger, Lynx reaches out with his right arm and prays for a miracle. Before either of them even start to process the physics of her trajectory, their hands wrap around each other's wrists. Florence dangles from one arm. The panicking audience gasps and shrieks. Thrashing about, Florence finally grabs onto a branch and starts to climb down slowly. Once Florence and Lynx reach the platform at Thor's base, the crowd cheers wildly in relief and celebration. Some even start chanting Lynx's name, but the adjudicators confidently shove through the densely packed bodies and lift Florence's hand in the air, proclaiming, The winner! The Ivy League offers Mademoiselle Florence Kibler's daughter a well-merited commission as a junior officer in the Ivy League! Unsure about his fate and feeling pressure in his bowels, Lynx heads toward the privy. Umpire Kibler calls for silence. Hear ye, hear ye, I have an important question. Dean Halvard, do the rules not state that the first person to reach the highest point wins? A feat your daughter accomplished admirably, Kibler boldly says. It seems to me that Mr. Lynx Cougarson reached the highest point first. 
barely able to believe his keen ears. Lynx freezes when he realizes he is peeing in his pants. Dean Halvard is not happy. You can't be serious. If you allow him to get away with that stunt, then it will set a precedent. Winners will have to stick their feet in the air from now on. Umpire Kibler folds his arms smugly as he speaks. A good skill to have for a tree climber, wouldn't you say, Monsieur Dean? Young Mr. Lynx reached the highest point first, performed an incredibly acrobatic stunt, and single-handedly saved my daughter's life, yet you did not hesitate to disqualify him. Florence is shocked out of her wits upon hearing her father trying to rob her of her victory. He's sapping the political momentum that such a prestigious win would give her campaign. She hears the dean insist. Young Mr. Lynx has abandoned our company and has thus disqualified himself. Well, not at all. He's right over there. Several hundred elves turn and stare at Lynx. The front of his pants are all wet. He sheepishly lifts his left hand and wiggles his fingers at them. Anyone who saw him leave with what appeared to be frustration and bitterness written all over his face would have assumed he was a sore loser when, in fact, finding a restroom was his most pressing concern. Sparing Lynx from the unflattering spotlight, umpire Kibler then announces, True to my word, I shall pay for Mr. Lynx Cougarson of Clan Hyrune to be commissioned as a junior officer in the Ivy League in hopes that he will bring to the prestigious military unit entrusted with the defense of our borders a new level of excellence. The wood elves go crazy, recklessly stomping up and down, whistling, squealing, cheering, whooping, and slapping each other on the back. None can remember the last time a wood elf won a commission in a major military league. At that moment, Florence realizes that her father just won over all the wood elves to her side. Xena's wood elf ancestry won't win voters now. The one who has fared worst of all from umpire Kibler's confrontation is Dean Halvard. Humiliated at having his judgment called into question so publicly, he nearly chokes on the news that the umpire-in-chief is sponsoring a wood elf as a junior officer in his elite Ivy League. His voice cracks with emotion as he forces himself to speak. The Ivy League is proud to welcome this year's tournament winner, Mademoiselle Florence Kibler's daughter of Clan Ethelion. The Ivy League has been the great guardian of our colony along its borders. Never have we been defeated because the Ivy League only admits the best and brightest elves. We have detected the echoes of the subtlest burglar gnome's footsteps and heard the breath of dwarves from far enough to shoot them in the dark. We have felt the shadows of the Magog goblins fall on... The dean's voice trails off as a heavily bound goblin is led into Thor's base by longhouse humans. The dean snarls. Who let that beast up here? Homeland Security Umpire Kibler nudges the dean aside and takes center stage. With more thespian artistry than sincerity of feeling, he announces sadly, It is with deep regret that I announce a report from my security staff only moments ago. A goblin has penetrated Tuscarora Mountain, lurking past the Ivy League patrols undetected. If it had not been for our allies, the Longhouse humans, he might have rampaged through the Wood Elf villages unchecked. The Longhouse human war chief tugs on a hemp rope tied to the hulking green goblin's neck, taking him through the dense crowd of elves toward the stage. Although tightly bound from neck to toe, the goblin snaps and bellows at the elves as he passes, clearly taking great delight in how easy it is to scare them. Florence and Lynx recognize him as the son of the goblin war chief performing those human sacrifices. 
Umpire Kibler continues his speech. Not only did this hulking goblin sneak past the Ivy League patrols, but so did the entire band of longhouse humans who tracked him down. Even after pricking it with sedatives, it took seven of their strongest to wrestle this monstrous goblin to the ground, and not a single Ivy Leaguer showed up to help them. This battle took place inside the marchlands near Weaving Widow's Peak. Umpire Kibler waits for full dramatic effect as the elves shiver with fear and outrage. Hearing that a goblin reached the marchlands is like hearing that an armed criminal sat on your front porch and no one noticed. Goblins are not supposed to be able to get so close to their elven settlement. We owe these allies our lives and our thanks. Out of my own funds, I have already paid a reward of $5,000 in Tuscarora Double Eagles to these warriors who captured the goblin. I hope the Ivy League will be willing to match my donation to the Longhouse Humans to make sure our friendship and treaties with them stay strong. If, Thor forbid, another more dangerous enemy should find a way to bypass the Ivy League's defenses, we ought to be able to count on human military support, just as they know they could count on us elves. Without further ado, I present Chief Skaruran. Chief Skaruran holds up a hand and says in a thunderous voice, Sayig, Hunyawe. To Florence's great surprise, Nganyan's father, Gandorf Mithranderson, steps up next to the tall human, completely unafraid of appearing short. Chief Skaruran stands a full-bodied six and a half feet above the stage. Despite the chief's muscular physique and height, the six-footer goblin's chest is so broad and his bulging pecs, shoulders, and biceps are so intimidating that he looks much larger than the chief, despite being a half-foot shorter. Meanwhile, Nganyan's father stands there next to them both, puffing out his chest and waving his skinny arms, with not the slightest hint of shame at his puny height a few inches below five feet. Nganyan's father is skilled in the language of the longhouse humans and translates the chief's words into runic for the benefit of the high elves in the audience. The big blue sky above has wept tears of compassion upon my people for centuries untold. In daylight, the sun rises from the east and moves west. Every day a new wave of affliction rises in the east and pushes westward, but every night the stars come out again fixed in the heavens. Tuscarora Mountain is our home. Every inch of its soil is sacred to us. We will not be moved from here. The Magog goblins come like clouds to cover the night sky. The next day we shine again. The Frankish and English humans come like lightning and thunder to dim our eyes and deafen our ears. The next day we see and hear again. These hillsides hide the ashes of our ancestors. The mountain peaks remember their footsteps. The streams and rivers run with their blood. When elves climb up in trees and keep watch above our heads with the squirrels, they honor our ancestors. When the halflings burrow under the soil and pile up food under our feet with the chipmunks, they honor our ancestors. When the dwarves tunnel deep into the mountains, finding the waters whose springs give us cool drink, they honor our ancestors. The spirits of the generations past and the great spirit who speaks to us in dreams protect us all. But those who come to walk over our lands that did not welcome them, those who come to take away our food that we did not lay before them, those who come to spoil our water that does not recognize their reflection, against them the fight is ours. Against them allies are strong. Against them united we stand. The roar of applause is deafening. Even Florence cannot restrain herself from cheering the noble and ingenious chief who has proven himself such a loyal and effective ally to the elves.
Kibler laborers, stewards, and household guards file into Thor's base and adorn the longhouse human warriors with leatherwork headbands, golden bracelets, and jeweled necklaces. They drape gold filigree-woven velvet capes around their shoulders and wrap embroidered silver sashes around their waists. They buckle elegant silver blades with gem-encrusted scabbards to their hips. When umpire Kibler finishes decorating the longhouse humans, the crowd eyes Dean Halvard, expecting similar pomp and fanfare. Completely taken unawares, Dean Halvard does his best to improvise a suitable reward. He removes from around his neck the symbol of his office as Dean of the Ivy League, the carcanet of light and truth flourishing. Exquisite and more valuable than all of Kibler's gifts combined, the gift of the Karkonet provokes mixed emotions among the elves. On the one hand, it certainly exempts the Dean from having to come up with any more gifts to balance out umpire Kibler's display of generosity. On the other hand, giving away such a masterpiece of the jeweler's art, such a significant icon of their cultural heritage, such a major portion of their patrimony, to a human it boggles their minds, offends their proprieties, and rakes against their values. The umpire-in-chief waits for the elves in the audience to vent their outrage before continuing. Although the praise in subduing the goblin rests so squarely on the shoulders of our human allies, the blame for overlooking it belongs to each and every one of us. We elves are so proud of our individual skills that we forget the value of contribution. To remedy this problem, I have decided to create a new post on the Council of Perfects, an overseer for all the military leagues in our colony. In an emergency session just before this tournament, legislation was approved naming Monsieur Gandorf Mithranderson the first major league's umpire in Fire Elf history. His role will be to coordinate and direct Homeland Security, making sure all three major military leagues, the Justiciar League, the Ivy League, and the League of Licorns, work together for the good of the colony. Fortunately, Lynx has already soiled his pants, so there is no new shock when he wets them again. In a single afternoon, not only has umpire Kibler suddenly become his patron in purchasing a commission for him in the Ivy League, thereby elevating his social standing in Chantelpe City to that of a high elf, but now Engannion's father is his new boss.